In our text this morning is Luke 2, um, verses 22 to, to 38. We read through 40, I believe, this morning, but uh, and I'd like to address a little bit of that here, that verse 39 here in the introduction. So if you will follow me in your Bibles this morning as we look at the presentation of Jesus. The infant Jesus being presented at the temple. Luke was a Gentile, as we've said before, and he was writing to Gentile readers. But the point here is that Luke was very careful to explain Jewish law under which Jesus was born. The others, being Jewish, did not really feel that was necessary, but Luke did. And Paul confirms that Jesus was born under the law in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Luke explains what uh, that brief statement means, under the law. And so he says here, when they, his parents, had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, which included the purification of Mary, because Jesus could not have a mother who was unclean or remained ceremonially unclean, says they returned to Galilee to their own town. And when they had completed everything, there in verse number 39, So Mary and Joseph, along with Zechariah and Elizabeth, were part of the righteous remnant. And we're going to look at two more here, Simeon and Anna, who were part of this righteous remnant that were spoken of by Malachi, there in chapter, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in its wings. I, I believe that is the New Covenant Gospel. The Son of Righteousness arising. Sun, light, dawning in that sin-darkened world. I, I don't think it's a specific reference to Jesus, but it could be too. But it's a whole glorious New Covenant Gospel that Jesus Christ is going to bring in. So here God was preparing Jewish saints at this point because the gospel comes to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And he's doing it uh, to them first because this is the fullness of time. God's marked his calendar. Here it is. Now it's here. The fullness of time. Now, now I want to just for purposes of introduction here, go back to that 39th verse here to the last phrase of it. They return when they had fulfilled everything, when all of this was done, they had completed everything, says they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And to the casual reader here, you may see this as meaning that that was immediate. Uh, they, They presented Jesus in the temple, and now then when they got done, they went home. If you hold to that, you've got a problem and what's the problem? I think he's making here just a, just a simple statement. When this was done, they went home. But, it, but the time reference here is the problem. And, and why is that? Well, because Luke, first of all, leaves out the visitation of the Magi and the escape into, into Egypt as recorded by Matthew, then which gives us important information about the time frame here between the Savior's birth and His return to Nazareth. What Luke is talking about, it was accomplished in about 40 days. So did they go back to Nazareth after 40 days? Where does the Magi fit in? Where does, where does their escape into Egypt fit into this? And so we need to look at that for just a moment. And, and I believe that if, if we're careful, we'll understand that about two years are involved, not 40 days. So Matthew records here 
that the visit of the Magi when Jesus was, was about approximately two years old. How do we know this? Well, there's two facts here. First of all, in Luke's Gospel, when the angel informed the shepherds that they would find the babe, that's brephos in the Greek, which refers to an infant, an infant child. They found the brephos. He had been born that very evening. Then we, we read here in Matthew that the Magi came to the house, to a house, and found the Paideia child, Jesus. Paideon primarily refers to young children up to two years of age. So it is most likely that the Magi saw the star when appear when the Jesus was born that night and then set off to find the baby Jesus and it took them well over a year to do so. Perhaps even up to two years. We, there's a second issue here and that is when the Magi failed to return to Jerusalem to jealous Herod, Herod the Great was a jealous man who even murdered his own children who were a threat to his royal seat. So when he heard that there was a king of the Jews born in Bethlehem, he wanted to see that baby gone. So he lied to the Magi and told them, when you find him, bring me word again that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, you're going to worship him with a sword. But it's not Christ's time. So the angel warned uh, Mary and Joseph to take the baby and go to Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod. When did Herod die? 4 B.C. We know that, that, that that's the date. Jesus was born in 6 B.C. Herod died in 4 B.C. That's two years. So when Joseph learned that Herod was dead and he prepared to return, he found out that Herod's son was reigning. And that concerned him. And the angel said, you're right, take him home to Nazareth. Don't take him back to Bethlehem. Take him back. Take him to Nazareth. Here we have this period of approximately two years. And there's another thing too. When, when Herod uh, uh, found found out that he had been betrayed by the wise men, got upset and ordered that all of the babies in Bethlehem, all the children, the Pideon from two years and under, should be put to death. All the boy babies. Now, well, let's get into this message because this message, in this message, we're going to focus on Jesus' circumcision and his presentation in the temple, and what's involved with this. And it includes uh, his mother's purification, and all of this occurring then forty days after his birth. So the first thing we want to look at this morning is the law and messianic qualifications uh, the Messiah is not going to come in and flaunt the law in fact Jesus was very specific I did not come to destroy it or to li literally to put it away I came to fulfill it so eight days and eight the number of new beginning or new creation when God told Abraham the babies were to be circumcised eight days after their birth, uh, me medic, medical people have looked at that and have said, there is something that happens on the, around the eighth day to that child's system that literally protects them from, from uh, uh, infection and so forth that would come from this operation. See, God was preparing it. God prepared everything. But I think there's more to it than just a physical benefit from it. There is 
this great fact of God's plan from the from the ages past that there would be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness would dwell. And so here it is in seed form back here. Abraham, when your babies are eight days old, you're to circumcise them. What does that do? That's Paul tells us that circumcision is the cutting off of the flesh. We battle the flesh. We're looking for the day when the real circumcision takes place in the resurrection, which will remove forever our sinful flesh. Cut off. Removed. Restored. Revived for a glorious, sinless future. Aren't you looking forward to that? And Jesus Christ is our substitute even in all of this. And so this new beginning, this eighth day, was accomplished for the Lord Jesus Christ, which I then identified Him with the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant people of God. And that was done in order that he might be Israel's promised messianic deliverer. Jesus' circumcision officially identified himself also with the Abraham with both the Abrahamic covenant, because that was required. In fact, any uncircumcised children were regarded as no as not part of the of the covenant community. And that was renewed then under the Mosaic Covenant. So, both these two covenants. But, and, and let me just emphasize to you this morning that the, it's not the Mosaic Covenant that is the main issue here. It is the Abrahamic Covenant. And the Abrahamic Covenant with its promises, and, it, and that's not by works. Abraham's covenant has nothing to do with works. Abraham was justified, how? By his faith. God was instituting a covenant of faith with Abraham. Then he brings them to Mount Sinai and introduces to them the the old covenant. And we're going to get into that here in just a second. But I want to emphasize to you that this is the main covenant. But the covenant that was made by Abraham to, uh, uh, to, the, to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai enabled that covenant made with Abraham to thrive. And how so? Now, here, this is the issue. The Mosaic covenant, unlike the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God did not say to Abraham, if you do anything, if you do this or do that, then I will. No. God said, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. And Abraham believed it, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But the Mosaic covenant is not the same. Notice in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, this was actually spoken to Israel before he gave them the the Ten Commandments, which comes in chapter 20. But now notice verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if, notice that word if, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. In other words, the onus was placed on you. I'm going to do certain things if you will do certain things. You shall, and there's the promise, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hmm. On the other hand, but if, you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments. 
but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you. Notice that? What did we say in the last message? This is God's visitation. <laughs> God visited his people. For redemption purposes too, yes, but it was also a visitation of judgment and that judgment occurred on, on Israel in 70 A.D. I'm going to visit you and I will set my face against you and those who hate you will rule over you. Isn't that exactly what happened? They didn't listen to God. They wouldn't obey His covenant. They... Uh, set their face against him. God set his face against them. And then he said, I'm going to visit you and I'm going to let the Gentiles rule over you. So that's what happened to the nation of Israel in failing to meet the condition of the covenant. If you read the, the Pentateuch, and I tried to count them up, but I just lost, I just lost myself there for a while. But the, 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 the two words, if you, in the... Pentateuch appear over and over and over and over again. It was a conditional covenant. It depended on their obedience. You say, why did God give them a covenant to obey if they couldn't keep it or wouldn't keep it? Hmm, that's a good question. Because it prepared, let me tell you, it prepared them for the new covenant. It made a ton of hypocrites out of those who didn't really look for God to do anything. They were going to do it themselves. Just like it, just like it is today, our churches are full of hypocrites who believe that they can do it themselves. God said, you just try to do it yourself. Go ahead. I'll get, I'll get into to that in a minute here too. But, but uh, it, here's the problem. People in their self-deceived, prideful confidence may claim to be morally good and keep the law. How many people I have talked to in the past and asked them, do you, what is your relationship to God? Do you know that when, if you die, what's going to happen to your soul? And I don't know how many people, some of the most people who I know are vile and wicked people say, well, I'm a good person. I, I keep, I, you know, I've kept the commandments. I do the right thing. Just like the lawyer says, well, all these have I kept from my youth up. Where do I lack yet? Yeah, that is self-deceived prideful confidence. And James chapter 2 verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law. Now James didn't, wasn't suggesting here that you could keep the whole law. He just said, if you think you can keep the whole law and you are confident that you have like that rich young ruler, all these have I kept from my youth up. James goes on to say, if that were possible, see, but fails to but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it what lack i yet go sell everything you have give it to the poor and come follow me and he had much riches and therefore he was grieved at his heart I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. The only righteousness that is acceptable to God is the one He provides. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. That is, I think, to be a sin offering for us. 
who knew no sin, sinless Son of God, so that in Him, notice, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to that. The law has no more effect on me. I don't have to fear the commandments of the law, my failure to keep them or my failure to not keep them. I know me. I know that I'm a wretch. I'm like Paul. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me. That's the key. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Give me all the commandments you want to, but I know that my flesh will fail every single time. Because there's no good in it. None. Well, what do I do? That's where the grace of God comes in. God took care of it for me. He gave His Son to be a sin offering for me so that He could forgive me for my failures, but turned around and put me into Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God, and now I'm fully acceptable to God. I don't have to wonder, Lord, am I living up to your standard? Yeah, you do. You you got it. <laughs> you're you're fine. Why? I'm in Christ. Now it's now here's here's what we have to understand. See? This is possible because according to verse 15 of that same context there in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is the old covenant, and the old covenant is the law that was instituted by Moses, by God through Moses on Mount Sinai. It has passed away. Behold, the new covenant has come. Now here, now here's something. Jesus was sinless. Did he have to keep the law? Nope. By his very nature, he couldn't offend God. He couldn't. Now, when he became a human being, he was tested. And we'll come to that here in Luke. When he was alone there in the wilderness and the Satan came to tempt him. But he couldn't sin. He could not sin. He walked out of there sinless. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Nobody. In him was no sin. Therefore, obedience to the law was unnecessary. Because he did it naturally. He didn't have to do it. He just It was just... He was obedient to the law. And he fulfilled it so that he testified until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's Matthew 5.18. How could this be done? Jesus himself came into the world and identified then with the seed of Abraham and with the nation of Israel in order to Fulfill it. To accomplish it. God said, If you will indeed keep my commandments, then I will be this to you. And Jesus came and stood in the place of Abraham, stood in the place of Israel, and fulfilled it. So that God could say, Yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bless you. You see that? So how could, how could this be done then for us? Because he came into the world and identified himself with not only Abraham and with the nation of Israel, but with all of 
the sinful world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Does that mean it's out? It's no longer? No, because there are certain aspects of the law that are a reflection of the nature and character of God and they don't go away. It's still wrong to steal. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to take His name in vain. Because that's an offense to the very person of God. But the law itself is gone and so... A number of the things that are connected with that, like not eating pork or shellfish or, or certain other things, are no longer viable. And just read Acts 15. See, this is the point. That even as God gave the law on Mount Sinai, He knew that no one had a heart to keep it. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, which reads here, Oh, that they had such an heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments so that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. When he gave, just when he gave the law, he said, they, they can't do it. What does Paul say? Look at uh, in Romans chapter 8. And in verse 6 there, uh, the, the, to set the mind on the flesh is death. And here, here this is, to me is, is the key. To set the mind on the flesh is death. And if you go back there to the 7th chapter, uh, when Paul says, for I know, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For And then notice, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's talking about the will. I want to do right. That, to me, this is, this is one of the most powerful truths in the Scripture. I know I can't be everything I ought to be. But I know that because of regeneration, I want to do it. My, I have a will to do it. The ability has to come from the Holy Spirit of God because in me there is no good thing. And to, to, to will to do it, I have, but to, but to perform it, I don't have. So go back there to uh, verse six again. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But wait a minute. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when he gave that to, on Mount Sinai, what, it, what happened? Those people thought, oh, we can do this. Yeah, all that the Lord has said, we will do. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. God said in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, None is righteous, no, not even one. So now that brings us to this. How is it possible then for Jesus to become my righteousness? That comes in the second part. Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary. And therefore he had to be redeemed according to Exodus chapter 13 verse 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is 
mine. Isn't that interesting? See, here again, goes back there. It was instituted because in order to free the people of, of God from Egypt. And here we have this whole salvation story illustrated here in the Old Testament scriptures with the exodus from Egypt. In order to release them, God sent judgments on the people for refusing to do so. Ten of them. The last judgment was the taking of, a, of the firstborn, of all the firstborn, both of man and beast. Pharaoh lost his firstborn son that night. That was the final judgment. But there, God made the provision if you will sacrifice a lamb and prepare that lamb to eat, but take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. When the death angel passes through, I will spare you. And so that night in Egypt, all that obeyed God and put the door, blood on the door and prepared themselves and ate the lamb which is symbolic of the table because that, that was the Passover celebration and Jesus instituted the Last Supper out of the Passover celebration. Jesus was the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. So that if they did that, then the death angel would pass over them and the first, so then God said, now because I did this for you, all the firstborn belong to me. All of them. You're to give them to me. But what was interesting, see, this is a this was a preview of God's plan to build a kingdom and to redeem a people. Now, the firstborn of both man and beast, because of this decree, belong to the Lord as, as his slaves to not to serve him forever. Mark that. Later, the Levites replaced the firstborn sons, so that they might serve God day and night in the priestly role. Thus the firstborn then who were not Levites had to be redeemed 40 days after their birth. Leviticus chapter 12 verse 6 states specifically that a lamb was to be brought as a sacrifice of purification unless one was very poor. In that case, two turtle doves or two young pigeons could be offered. That Mary and Joseph brought turtle doves proves their poverty. Contrary here to uh, the uh, prosperity gospel preachers who would, have, who would have seen that as an indication that they had a really poor walk with God. <laughs> yeah, Really? So this concept then was projected on the whole nation. God said, you, Israel, are my firstborn son. You belong to me. Therefore, you are to serve me. We know this from, from uh, uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt have I called my son, not son, plural, singular, son, Israel. Well, we know Israel didn't live up to it. So here, so along comes Matthew. And I was reading one commentator who, who said that Matthew here saw an analogy to the reference of Jesus fleeing into Egypt to be like, to be like that of Egypt, uh, Israel in Egypt. So he cited Hosea. What is that right? Was Jesus just okay? Here's something that's similar, and I'm going to get. So here's an illustration that was really written about Israel, but uh, it was applied here by Matthew to Jesus. Uh-uh. Notice what G Matthew said in chapter two, verse fifteen. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to, or by the prophet. You get that? See, Jesus is the true Son. He is the true Israel. The exodus of, e of 
of Israel from Egypt was an analogy of the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and thus his being redeemed as the firstborn was in obedience to the law. In Exodus chapter 19, God said, and this is verses 4 and 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, we know they didn't obey his voice. Israel failed to live up to the condition of the promise, if you will. And that was by design. Because the Son of God fulfilled it. And thus to save his people, God turned to his true Son and true Israel to realize his purpose to have a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter tells us this. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, As you come to Him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul supports this in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or, or excuse me, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified hebrews affirms this listen to this hebrews 12 verses 22 to 24 but you have come to mount zion the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to an innumerable and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn you hear that we're firstborn we belong to God. Therefore, we're His slaves. And, it's our, and we're duty-bound to serve Him. See, here's the problem with so many Christians. They want to go to heaven when they die. They want to be sure that, they're, that uh, uh, they've got a spot in heaven. They're not going to spend eternity in hell. But I'm going to live for my life for myself. I've got my own plans. I've got my own ambitions. I have my own dreams and desires. I'm going to live them out first. I'm re and you know, if if it's convenient, I'll come to church on Sunday. But otherwise, no, me, 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 me first. You're not a firstborn, if that's your attitude. The firstborn belong to God. Period. They're his slaves to serve him. Period. You put everything else aside. Your own dreams and your own ambitions. If God in his providence wants to give you those things that will bless you, that's his business, not yours. There's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to be certain, embarrassed when they, when they meet Christ at the judgment and have to hear him say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. This brings us to Anna, Simeon and Anna, and I'll be quick. Simeon, because this, this fulfills a lot of what we're just talking about. I think there's a tremendous thing, the way that they, these things are connected. But here in the second point is the righteous remnant testifying to the Lord's Christ. Here's a question. If, the Old Covenant couldn't save anybody. How is there a righteous remnant? And I'm, Let me just go back to that will. What did God do? Well, let, let, let's look here at Simeon. Here was Simeon, who is described here. 
is righteous. How is he righteous? Because Christ, his righteousness has not yet died to become his righteousness. Well, remember what it says of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. Grace. God says, I'm going to give you what's going to become a reality because it's going to become a reality. Therefore, I can guarantee you that you have what Jesus will provide to the new covenant people. I can give it to you now by way of promise. Simeon wasn't righteous because he did good stuff. Simeon was righteous because he walked by faith. And it, like Abraham, was counted to him for righteousness. It was put on his record. It was deposited in his account. Righteousness. Not his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he was devout. That's the will. He committed himself to God and to God's will to do the will of God in his life. See, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. And he had hope and expectation waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then, to top it off, the means is told us here, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't permanently indwell the Old Testament saints, but this man had the Holy Spirit walking with him. He is a true saint of God. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. That's verse 26. And he was led by the Spirit then to come to the temple at the right moment when the parents brought this baby Jesus in for the dedication. And what did Simeon expect to see? He's waiting because he has the idea, just like all the Jews, that Messiah is going to be this prince, David, sitting upon his white horse, fully armored with a sword in hand, ready to do business with the Gentiles. And what did he find? He came in and he found this poor couple, this poor carpenter and his teenage wife holding their little baby with two turtle doves and young pigeon, or young pigeon, well, two, two, two turtle doves to offer, showing their poverty. But because he's a real child of God and he is a real saint, he immediately adjusted. He didn't, he didn't find this pomp and glory. He found this poverty. But he immediately adjusted. And perceiving by faith that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah of God, he took that baby up into his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, you kept your promise to me. I'm, re I'm ready to die a peaceful death because mine eyes have seen the Lord's Christ. He understood that this Messiah was the salvation of God prepared for all the people. He then in typical Jewish Understanding divided the people into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. So you note the words, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to, the, to your people Israel. However, he also understood by the Spirit that Jesus' salvation was not solely for Israel, as most Jews supposed, but for all the people. This truth was clear in the Old Testament as well to those who had eyes to see it. In Psalm 98, verse 2, the Lord has made known His salvation, this truth. Uh, excuse me. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it, it shall come to pass in the latter days, this gospel age. The latter days is this gospel age. 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. That's the gospel age. When his kingdom is being established. The context of this passage is God's ultimate purpose to rule all the nations in his kingdom. He then appealed to Jacob. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk with the Lord. And why this appeal? Because in verse 6, God said, For you have rejected, or the prophet said, For you, God, have rejected your people due to their rebellion, the house of Jacob. So then, Jesus' father and mother marveled at what was said about this baby, Jesus. And then Simeon blessed them, a priestly function. But as the prophet as a prophet, then he turned his attention to Mary and prophesied, Behold, this, this child is set, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And then he says to her, A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's not going to be easy. Jesus is the cornerstone in the temple. Peter talked about that too, uh, and Paul did in first when he talked about that he is a stum, uh, the cornerstone is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. In First uh, Corinthians chapter one verses twenty three and twenty four, he says, "We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both of Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God." Again, Isaiah prophesied, He, the Lord of hosts, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses in Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble at it, shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. That's Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. But it is still... Something that the Jews stumble over and New Covenant people, the church, are, that are the spiritual Israel composed of both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews don't like that at all. And I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just stating a fact. So that brings us to Anna, the prophetess, due to her widowhood. And here's the problem. Only seven years after marriage, Anna spent her life in the temple what did she do? She worshipped God with fasting and praying night and day. That's a good deal for widows. She presents the glorious illustration of Paul's instructions to Timothy there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 5. She who is truly a widow and left alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Luke gives does not give Anna's age, but she was much older than Elizabeth. The ESV suggests that she was 84 years of age. The problem here is the way the Greek reads. You can read it one of two ways. You can read it, she was either 84 years of age, or you can read it that she was a widow for 84 years. It's really unclear in the Greek itself. If we accept that reading, she was 84 years of age, which is quite old. But if, if, the, if we read the Greek that she was a widow for 84 years, which is equally possible, that means she was about 106 years old. Because if she followed the typical Jewish practice, she married at 15 years of age, lived as a married woman for 7 years, then was widowed for 84 years. That would make her 106 years old. It's not likely then that she lived that long, but it is possible. And here then are two saints of God, righteous remnants, whom he preserved until he saw, until they saw the messianic promise fulfilled. Isn't that God's grace? Isn't that marvelous? And the fact that she refused to withdraw from the temple suggests that she was waiting for something with eager anticipation. She was probably in the woman's court, but providence brought her into 
this main area where she saw the little group. Maybe she saw Simeon taking the baby in his arms. And she understood in her spirit that this child was the answer to her prayers. Her response was to give thanks to God and to share the news about him with all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, that is, the righteous remnant. So while Anna may have had an earthly Jerusalem in mind, we know that we have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, that is the old covenant, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You understand that? Oh, those words thrill my heart. I'm looking for Jesus to come. I'm wanting him to come now. Why? Because my will is to do the will of God. But how to perform that is I do not find. I am righteous. I'm acceptable to God right as I am. But I don't see that righteousness perfected in my flesh. But the day is coming when the righteous will be made perfect. And because of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Do you you have this same determination? Do you have this longing for the consummation of the present age, the second coming, that these godly saints had for the inauguration of of this present age, his first coming? Yeah. They were anxious and eager. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for... Wow, the, the tremendous spiritual information that's, re, that's recorded for us in these verses. That Jesus is our righteousness. He is your firstborn. And in him we are the firstborn. We belong to you. We have been redeemed. We have been made children of God. Heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And we will live with you forever. So Lord, right now we want to live with you here. We want to be everything that you want want us to be. So Lord, like Anna, we should be willing to be those who wait for you with hope and anticipation and eager anticipation, praying and night and day, seeking your face, longing for those around us to share that concern, that interest. Lord, I pray, come, come soon. And we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.